This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And welcome back to another remotely recorded episode of the podcast where we give our usual disclaimer, which you may already be sick of, that while we are recording these episodes during the coronavirus pandemic here in the United States, uh, we are designing them to be episodes that will live forever. So it doesn't matter what's going on in the world. When you encounter this on the Internet, we are not just going to talk about what was happening with the coronavirus in April of 2020, which is when yeah, this here's hoping was that made. it's a bad memory and that everybody got a vaccine and it turned out better than expected. Exactly, and uh, but what we did want to talk about, what we thought would be maybe our little way of contributing to a conversation that could go on forever, which was because we work from home all the time, which I consider to be a blessing. I don't know if you feel the same way, Eric Shaw Quinn. Oh my God, but <laughs> it's the best thing that ever happened. Exactly. But there are some there are ways to make your time more productive. There are ways to fight distraction and there are ways to stay sane, particularly if you are a creative person who is uh, living entirely in an imaginary world while you are at home by yourself. And we thought that this might be the time when these ideas were fresh for us, but also they could be useful to somebody any time of the year, no matter what's going on. Uh, if you're having to work at home for any reason, this is sort of a forced circumstance that we're living under now. But um, there might be other instances where you have to work from home. You have to stay home with children who are in the other room, that kind of stuff. We don't have experience with the kids parts. <laughs> and that's the thing that yes. I have noticed again and again. Nothing like that for us. Yeah, no, no. There, yeah. There's, we, we do not have that. And I'm not sure if working from home would be if like one of the other things about us is that we also live alone. And so the working for home thing is less dubious. Like if somebody was having like, you know, a big laughy lunch in the next room while I was trying to work at home, that might change the nature of my joy in doing it. Right. Absolutely. And I, I think there's also a trade-off though as well, which is that with nobody coming home in a certain time, we are left to make the call about when work is over. And sometimes that can be the hardest part. If you don't have rituals um, in your home environment, like I'm going to close this office door and that's the end of my work day, you can feel like you are always at work. And having a family presence, particularly a lot of writers I know who have children, it's like they have to get as much work done as possible before three o'clock or thereabouts because the kids are on their way home and they don't know how to work when the kids are home either. They can't work as effectively. So, yeah, you're right. I don't I don't have experience with that either. Um, how did I think you the start other thing, working at home? Well, it was like I, I was I was. I, you know, honestly, I wasn't working alone. Now that I think about it, I was working in a dorm room. 
a lot of my writing started when I was in college and I had gone to uh, school believing that I was going to take the theater department by storm and the theater department had different ideas and I was really <laughs> offended not to get called back for a single audition my freshman year, like not even a callback. I was so devastated. It was such a, a dose of reality because I had been Mr. Theater at my high school in the drama department. But I had this passion for writing. I had a passion for writing screenplays, and I started to do it later at night in my dorm room. And I think some of it, it helped that I had a very, um, I'm not going to call him an indulgent roommate, but a very respectful roommate. And he had his side of the room, and I had mine, and he was not noisy, and he was not always inviting tons of people over, and he didn't have any kids. (laughs) But you shared the room. You were like, it was like two sides of the same big room. That's correct. It was two sides of the same big room. Wow. It was it was a, a double dorm room, but it was not like a suite or anything. There was no refuge for any of us. And I um, I would put headphones on, though, and listen to music, which was part of it. And that was about tuning out everything else that was going on. But yeah, I did a lot of writing of like early stories and ideas during that time. And I forget that I did it with somebody else kind of literally right over my shoulder. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I guess I, I do have that sort of, I had the experience of my sister and I always laughed that we were the first kids on our block whose parents moved away from home. Um, what does that mean? You have to tell everyone what that there means. Was a, there was a point at which we were both in college and like early years, early days in college. And my father got promoted to be the dean of the graduate school at this college in another city. One of the stipulations was they wanted him to live on campus. They had houses on campus for, I guess, upper level um, staff members. I've, I've no idea, but, but so my mother and my father and my younger brother went to live in another city. And my sister and I shared the house that, you know, was our family home. Uh, prior to them. We did that for a year, I think. And then we continued to live together in a series of uh, apartments. But all of those were about sort of initially working together, uh, you know, working at home. But I will tell you the real lesson in working at home that I um, where it really took with me um, was around the time that I first wrote Say Uncle. I actually had three jobs. Um, I, I was the creative director at an advertising agency. I wrote a column for um, a local sort of a weekly um, paper, and I had a week a weekly television show segment, like ten or fifteen minutes, um, about uh, entertainment reporting. And so I was incredibly busy, and and then plus I was writing the novel, but. Most of my days at my primary income, which was the advertising agency, were spent in meetings. So there was no writing getting done at at work. Um, so I began writing at home early in the morning. I would get up in the morning and do all of my writing for the day and then take handwritten on yellow pads and then take it in and give it to my assistant who would type it up, and then I would give it to the appropriate people when the time came. And that's also how I wrote my first novel, was in longhand on yellow pads on Saturday mornings, because that was the only time that I consistently had free. Um, And it was about, like, 
I relished it because it was a time when I was undisturbed. Like Mm -hmm. I didn't mind being in the office, but it was very sociable. There was a lot of noise and distraction and people and meetings and obligations and responsibilities. So I couldn't really get a lot of the writing work done as a writer. I found it really, you know, kind of like, I don't need monastic silence in order to write. I learned to write sitting at the front desk of an advertising agency, answering the phone and running the errands. So I can stop and start. I can be interrupted and continue. Like it isn't that, but it was about having that time and that space um, Mm -hmm. to do it. Um, But then, you know, then there was the point at which then I didn't have to. Like, how did how did that play for you when you you didn't have to have a roommate, when you didn't have to go anywhere else, when it really was when you first were just on your own to write at home whenever you felt like it or, you know, when you became the only boss and there was just the one job? How did that play for you? Well, that's when you really it sounds like it's going to be a complete luxury. But what you face is the prospect of overwhelm and monotony. And and I was saying this to somebody the other day. If you wake up thinking, well, I have all day to do this thing that I need to do. Two things can happen. You can that thought can reverse itself and be like, oh, my God, I have to spend all day doing this thing. (laughs) And then you start to move into delay and procrastination and and. uh, well, I have all day to do it, so I can do it at 4 p.m. instead of 9 a.m. And 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 it, the thing that has been the most important to me has been to break it off into bite-sized pieces, you know. And I think if you're going to be working at home or doing anything at home for an extended period of time, I actually talked about this the other day in my bathroom bookstore series, which we can. T- if oh. anyone's following me on social media, they've probably seen those. I you've got to give yourself little. What was that? I said I'm not sure if I've about- seen that one. You haven't seen my bathroom bookstore. You were part of the progenitor of bathroom I've seen a lot of the episodes. I'm not sure if I saw that particular episode where you were talking about this. Please, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You were no, 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 it's fine. Not being overwhelmed by your tasks, but yeah, no, I haven't been ignoring bathroom bookstore. I called it bathroom bookstore. I've been, I've been on the 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 internet looking for a reasonably priced shopping cart to have delivered to your house that you can use in the bathroom bookstore. I want one of those. I want to like an adult sized version of those orange plastic play school push carts from the <laughs> grocery store. That's what I'm looking for. And for the people who have absolutely no idea what we're talking about right ha now, ha. Very, why not? Very why aren't po- you listening? A very poorly designed bathroom on the first floor of my, um, uh, my home. And it has had these, the shower is in the middle of the room. So it's like this porno shower, which sounds like, so sexy and hot, but the reality is it's incredibly uncomfortable to take a shower in it because you're cold, you're in the middle of a vast room, and there are no surfaces within easy reach for soap and all that sort of stuff. So I took the shower head out because I was never going to use the shower, and it has all these useless glass shelves in it, so I decided to style them with books because when the coronavirus hit, I couldn't go to bookstores, and that's what I was missing not more than anything, but it was one of the things I was missing the most. So Eric said, oh, you can play bookstore in your house. So I started to do that on social media every day with these little three-minute videos. But the the one that was most recent to this recording, it was about breaking up your the task of your day, even if it's just one task, into bite-sized pieces that you can complete individually 
so that you have an ongoing sense of accomplishment and you're not viewing your day as a prison sentence. When there wasn't, even though my roommate in college was not about monitoring my work habits, he was still another presence in the room. There was still that sense of uh, there would be social disappointment of some sort or a social reaction if I didn't do what I was used to doing, which was going to the computer, putting the headphones on and doing some level of writing. So you have to move away from how other people are going to respond and into um, giving yourself little carrots, treats, and rewards. And I think, as you once said to me, the single worst thing you can do as a writer, and you will do it to yourself if you don't watch it, or, or as a worker at home, like a sort of knowledge or tech-based worker, is um, I have to complete the entire task in five minutes, even if it's a monumental task, even if it's a novel. Writers will sit down, and even if they don't admit it, they'll say, I want to finish the whole book today. I want to get as much of the book done as I can so that I can stop having this book to do. you know. And saying instead, I'm going to do 30 minutes and take a break. I'm going to do 30 minutes and take a break, or I'm going to do an hour and take a break, or I'm going to have a manageable word count. There are versions of those things that anybody can apply to their workday that may not have anything to do with um, writing a novel or even making up a story. Well, to me, the biggest thing was the social disconnection. Like prior to, uh, there was a certain point um, after the movie option happened and, you know, money started to come in at a better level from writing um, where I stopped going to, I was a nine to five person, you know, I, I had jobs, I went to a regular office, I did that sort of thing. And initially when that was no longer an expectation of my life, I disconnected from the, the sort of the expectations that society puts on you or that just a nine to five job puts on you getting up at a certain time, going to work at a certain time. Those kinds of things. So having an actual schedule, having a structure was huge because initially I just sort of drifted off into oblivion. I can do it anytime I want. It could be today. But and be tomorrow. how did you week. arrive at the structure? How did you get yourself to a structure after that initial period of oblivion? Well, I, it was like, I think that it was because I didn't want to have to go back to the nine to five, you know? I mean, I really think that was part of it. It was the incentive was the thought of losing it. Um, right. Because I wasn't being productive. And if I wasn't productive, then I wasn't, there wasn't going to be product. And if there wasn't product, there was nothing to sell. And if there was nothing to sell, I was going to have to go back to an office job. And so the fact that, um, the fact that I wanted to keep working at home alone was the, the encouragement was the impetus for me to begin to create a structure and to create um, a, a work plan that could keep me working there. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Christopher and Eric is a production of the TDPS Network, which mm. you can support by visiting thedinnerpartyshow.com or www.tdps.tv. And by clicking on the gold Amazon box at the bottom right-hand corner of the homepage, 
you'll ensure a portion of your subsequent Amazon purchases supports podcasts like this one. The same is true if you use any of the buy links on our website as well. And thedinnerpartyshow.com and tdps.tv is also where you can find all the episodes of our other podcast, The Dinner Party Show, which is full of celebrity interviews and sketch comedy that's gotten us banned in 20 states. That's not true. A man can dream. All right. Well, let's dream of everyone supporting our website. That way we can avoid putting an ad in this spot for a crowdsourced skin surgery hour. Well, I think that's fascinating. I mean, I think it sounds like it was the the incentive that kept you there that got you to a schedule was the prospect of losing the independence that because comes I'm from telling you for a long time initially for a whole variety of reasons I did not you know like I it was like I don't ever have to go to work again woohoo so sleep till whenever you want and get up when you want and party whenever you want and stay up as late as you want and all of those things are great but that's not what working at home is you know like I set an alarm clock. I get up at the same time every day. I get dressed. I have a shower. I don't sit around in my pajamas all day long. You know, like I don't put on a business suit, but, you know, I also shave my face. Like I I do the things, a lot of the things that I would do if I was in any other. And as you said, I work for, I also don't do the thing of I am constantly at work. I think it's really helpful to me to have your office where you're going to do your work and I'm a writer, so that can be flexible. Like I wrote the book that I wrote with Pamela Anderson in bed, mm-hmm. <laughs> like on a laptop. Um, yeah, it seemed kind of appropriate at the time, although that wasn't the choice. That was just the way that it was. I had a roommate at that point, so I had to uh, to find a place where I could work. But having an office where you can close the door and be done for the day is an important part, I think, of of working at home because you also have to stop. So you work for a few hours and then you stop. I take a lunch break. I take weekends off. I do the things that I have vacations. I have do the things that I would do if I was doing any other job. When you were working in an office environment, you you talked previously about how your only un, undisturbed period was Saturday mornings. Um, be because, and that is when you wrote your book because you didn't have anyone from your workplace bothering you. Right. Were there moments where you had, to, where you went home to work from the office where you were able to do that? There were things that could be done better at the house, or you well, were able to leave. Well, in the and come office back? days, is uh, I, I would get up really early in the morning. I would get up exceptionally early. I would get up at like, I mm-hmm. can't even remember, five or six o'clock in the morning, and I would go out for a long walk, kind of, you know blow away the cobwebs, have my coffee, whatever, get dressed. And then I would sit down on the patio and drink coffee and smoke uh, cigarettes and do all of my writing for the day before I ever went to the office. So that by the time I got to the office at nine or whenever the call was 10, whenever the office opened, I was already done with the writing part, which was technically Mm -hmm. my whole job. Like, Mm-hmm. I was a creative director, so there was a lot of other things for me to do, most of which were go to meetings, talk to clients, hear their terrible ideas about um, how to do advertising, which they never knew what they were doing. Well, not never, but mostly didn't know what they were doing. But you had to be patient and kind of indulge them and some way to include whatever notion that they had. But it wasn't about writing. It wasn't about being focused and getting things done. So, yeah, even when I was working at the office, I was working at home, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I think that's interesting. Do you, when you were in that office environment, if somebody had said to you later in life, you will have the opportunity to do nothing but work from home, would you have said, I don't know, or, oh, sounds great. I mean, it would have meant a fundamental na- change in the nature of what you were doing for a living, but but I guess we're it's it's an, it teases this idea of a, a question that we asked people on Facebook recently, which was, is, is there anything in your life that you've ever resisted, but it turned out to be the best thing for you? And I think since we're having this conversation in a time when a lot of people have been forced into a circumstance that might have sounded amazing to them, five months ago you don't have to leave your house and <laughs> now you're like forced to leave your house yeah i think it's an interesting disca- aspect of the discussion honestly i i think that my given my what happened i would have had the same terrible response that i had when i first got the opportunity to work from home all the time mm-hmm. if you had told me way back then I would have said, woohoo, you know, I'm free. And I would have done exactly the same terrible thing. And I might not have recovered from it that I did when, um, when I actually got the opportunity that I would have gone off schedule. I would have stopped shaving, getting dressed, getting up at a regular time, keeping a, a structure. And I think it would have been, and I might not have, you know, had the opportunity or the impetus to, Uh, to overcome it. So I I guess that came at the right time, though it was never something that I aspired to. The thing, my regret, my answer to your question is quite different. Uh, Oh, oh, okay. Well, should we go there? Is there more we want to say about working from home before we take a side trip? I I don't know. We might explore working from home a little bit more because that was the thing we said we were going to try. What would be our tips? I, I would say a schedule would certainly be my contribution. Have a regular schedule and treat yourself like it's a real job. Have an actual office, a dedicated workspace. And if it's possible that you can close and not be there, take lunch breaks, take coffee breaks, knock off at five or whenever make an agreement with yourself about how long you're actually going to work. Yours was great. Don't overwhelm yourself by trying to get the whole job done the first day, break it up into. Yeah. And I I think also another term for what I was talking about, that's, that's sort of a businessy buzzy term is time boxing, right? Where it's like you bite the things off in little pieces, but you also give them a specific time in your schedule throughout the day. And you're not just doing it in one uninterrupted, overwhelming session that you've planned for yourself. Uh, you know, there's another, you, you, when you and I were working in a writer's room, I, I made a discovery that what, this is how initially it seemed. It seemed that there were going to be some things that I still wanted to do for myself, like physical fitness things. And I was going to have to do them at a time of day when I was not used to doing them. It was right. about making yeah. sacrifices to accommodate a new schedule that was not of my design. Right. And what I discovered was that I was capable of waking up a lot earlier than I realized. And that when I woke up, I was actually incredibly productive. And so while I had originally gotten up started getting up before the sun because I thought that's the only time I'm going to be able to make it to Orange Theory, which was the group fitness class I was doing at the time. I discovered that I wrote the best during that period of time. I wrote the most kind of fluidly. And um, I became, when I discovered that by chance, thinking, oh, this is the one day I won't go to Orange Theory, I'll just write early in the morning, I had to bust myself and be like, actually, work is the priority. And if you can do really good writing at this time, you got to give this this time block yeah. to this activity and move the other thing to some other time, you know, 
Because I'm never going to want to work out. It doesn't matter what time of day it is. It's never like, woohoo, I get to go stress my body out now. For me, that changes with writing. Like sometimes it's like for a while, I'll be like all about first thing in the morning. And then sometimes I'm in the afternoon. And then, you know, like I go through periods where I'm going to write late at night when everybody's asleep and it's completely dark outside. Right. As long, I think it's, it's whenever I'm willing to do it. Like that's the great part about working on, you know, working from home and working on your own is that you can go to the mall at 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning or go to a matinee at the movies, you know, on a, on a Wednesday afternoon and not have to deal with that. But the flip side of it is I have to make a work schedule and keep it. And if it's start work at one in the morning, that's fine. Nobody cares when you're doing the work as long as you're doing it. So you have to make, you can make a schedule that works best for you. And what you're discovering, it sounds like is that what works best for you is getting up and working early and first thing in the morning. Well, and there's, there's an added benefit of that, which I discovered, which is that if you manage to get two to three hours of work done first thing in the morning, no matter what comes next, you're going about your day from a position of confidence and accomplishment. It's like you put a platform under yourself. Absolutely. Particularly like I can start work without hitting the shower first. I can still be in my robe and go from my tea and my morning meditation right to the computer and, you know, and, and like, yeah, no, well, I, I take a shower before bed and I'm very clean. So I do too. And I still yeah. get up in the morning and take a shower and do the whole thing and completely get ready like I was going to leave the house. And then I go in there with my tea and sit down at the computer and, you know, start. Well, my your way is day. wrong and my way is right. That's what this but podcast is about. I think it's wrong all about no, what I think. But I think that's the point. I think that's one of the yeah. takeaways of our advice is you have to. The benefit is you can pick whatever work schedule you want. And the, the requirement is the success strategy is pick one that will be your most productive. Yes, absolutely. Whatever that absolutely. turns out to be. But man, boy, howdy, if you had told me just a few years ago I'd be waking up at 5.30 in the morning, I, I, I would have just said, you are out of your mind. Like, I think I would you have, have been to surprised be willing to, to bend and flex, you know, and discover. Because it's like, I did it a few times out of necessity, and I was like, this isn't so horrible, you know? And I, I love... <laughs> I think so much self-esteem comes from doing not necessarily like rescuing a suicidal person off the side of a bridge. Although if you have the opportunity to do that, that's wonderful. You but should. So much self-esteem comes from doing the things you told yourself you would never be able to do. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. And sometimes they're subtle and they're small, but like you've tried to own them as a limitation for so long. And then you discover, Oh, I actually can do this. Oh yeah. When we were first starting the writer's room, uh, and the, the, initially they said nine o'clock and we said, what about 10? Because <laughs> yeah. we were and like we terrified 10. about the notion of like, and they said, sure, yeah, 10 is fine. But yeah. um, but it was it was a little sort of like daunting. It was like, oh, my God, we have to be at work at, you know, a regular time every morning. Oh, my God. And we yeah, did I it. In LA it actually was too. not even really. Oh, yeah. That is the one thing I think I'm if I had to leave the house for work. I might not live in Los Angeles. I have said that often. I said, my opinion of LA is dramatically informed by the fact that I don't have a commute. Yeah. I, I'm not sure if I could face that. Yeah. I'm not sure if I could uh, to deal with it. Although we did okay to the, uh, to the writer's room. It was really like a mile and a half. And we were, we were driving in the opposite direction of traffic. We were not in the, in the flow, Well, but it was, it was, <laughs> Air quotes. 
So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's, we obviously, as we already said, we can't speak to the kids and family question of how to work from home. But the answer to that seems to be to have a workspace, right? It has to, an office with a closable door and it's like nobody can come in during that time. And Although, even people who work. I've gotten stuff done without that. I really think it's important, particularly because it allows you to separate from being at work. Like yeah. I wrote, I wrote one of the queerest folk books on the uh, fainting sofa in the living room. You know, like there, there's been all kinds of different work schedules and workplaces that I've gotten stuff done. But when I was able to actually dedicate um, a space to being an office space and close the door, it really, it, it, it was an escalation to my productivity as working at home because it took me out of the constant dread of being at work. I wasn't always at the office. I got time off. And I think that's really important. I think it's really easy when you work from home to always be at work. Yes. Yeah. I think that's that. I have a work area right now. I don't actually right now, as we record this, I'm in my office at home, but um, I do a lot of my writing at a round table. That's actually, I live in a kind of loft like space. It's in my living area, but when I'm in my TV room, my back is to it. So <laughs> I don't have yes. to see it. I could just turn, there's no door, but I can turn my back to it. Yeah. Yeah. It and is, I call it, is, it. And the space is large enough that it's like yes. uh, two rooms. It's not like right on top of you. What do you call yeah, it? I don't like, I, do, I call it my creativity island because there's a little round rug underneath it. And it's like, I, I don't actually do this, but I think it's a nice idea. Like I, if I step off the island, I can check Twitter and Instagram. But if I'm on the island, I have to work. It's not always that <laughs> that rigorous. It's not always that rigorous. Yeah. Part, part of this conversation, as we said earlier, is being flexible, being adaptable. And so we asked our, our lovely listeners on Facebook, um, an interesting question, and as always, we got some interesting responses. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And pitches. That's right. We're also authors, and you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. So, yeah, I love the idea of asking people, of talking back and forth to people as much as we can. And uh, I thought this question was uh, really, I thought we got some great answers. Yeah. And the place that we do this is on our Facebook page. And that is the Facebook page for the Dinner Party Show. And that's where you can leave any questions and comments for us any time of day or night because it's Facebook and we'll see it in the morning. Um, but yeah, the question that we asked people was what's the thing in your life that you most resisted, but turned out to be the best for you. And we got a lot of really great answers. I want to start with the one about the animal. Of course, this is from Jim C. He said, after a head injury, having a little dog found in a parking lot dropped into my lap at a time when I thought I can't take care of myself, much less a dog 
We made it work, and she became my constant companion. At the time, the results of the injury were such that I was seriously contemplating ending things. Wow. Mm. Sarah gave me a reason to keep going, and then two more abandoned pups were literally dropped in my lap. Suddenly, I had a family to be responsible for, so now those final plans are on hold. Good, Jim. Good. Glad, glad those plans glad are on that's hold. true. But also, yeah. what a delightful sort of, um, you know, like, didn't think to get a pet until then, and then it turned out to be this wonderful addition to his life. I, I think that's... You know, yeah, I have I have always said I will have another dog when I have a yard, but I do mm. but I do miss having a dog. I mean, I, I loved my little Scotty. I um I thought that was wonderful. And I I love cats, but I don't really have a big enough apartment to keep them. Like if I had a place that I could put a, a litter box that would be outside of my living area. I would be okay with it, but I'm not willing to share an apartment with a litter box as much as I may love the kitties. Mm. And dogs are just out of the question in, a, in an apartment in a busy city. I, I Everybody does it, but I, I don't think I could stand it. Yeah, you and the dog would kind of drive each other nuts. You like Scotties because they're independent dogs, right? Yeah, they're not like, they're very undog-like. They are not yippity. They don't jump on you. They don't They don't really seem to need all that much. They're much more feline in their kind of relationship to you. I mean, she was pleased to see me, but it was always this sort of dinner's late kind of look. She didn't get up and run over when mm-hmm. I came home. Um at, you know, at that time of day, she was, you know, like she would raise her head from the mantle, the hearth where she was sleeping and look at me like, oh, yeah, uh, let me know when dinner's ready. And then she yeah. would go back to sleep. Um, and when she was affectionate, which was not often, it was always special because uh, it was like, oh, you want to sit next to me? Wow, mm, that's really because it was so it was withholding. unusual. Yeah. Yeah. Usually but though, I think she was you... off somewhere else. But I didn't I don't. All of that barking and jumping around and licking and going berserk every time somebody comes to the door. I just, I, I'm not, I'm not really big on that. But I think the larger sort of message of Jim's response, I mean, we, it's like seeing a picture of a dog, everything becomes about the dog, is that in a time of difficulty, taking responsibility for something gave him a sense of purpose or a sense of connection to something outside of himself. And I think that's kind of an amazing universal message, right? You yeah. Know, and particularly in a moment when he didn't want it, he said, I had a head injury. You're kidding a dog. Like I'm, and it's yeah. such an interesting thought about that. Like I've always thought with people with like sending dogs to people in the, I've always said, if I'm ever in the hospital, do not send a dog to my hospital room. There will be yelling. Why is that? You know, Why I just don't want a dog in my hospital room. Like, I, but mm-hmm. you know, to each his own, but I don't want one. Um, but I can see in that circumstance, I, I hadn't thought of the taking responsibility for another living creature being of the, the benefit that you're getting. You know, yeah, I think of absolutely. them as like fetching your slippers, like, okay, yeah, I guess yeah. that would be nice, but whatever. <laughs> you have a very servile view of dogs. <laughs> you had to let go of your, your pets and that you my shared them. My cats, I did. That was not my favorite thing, but I was terribly allergic to them. There were two ragdoll cats, which are some of the sweetest, um, most Dumbest. physically affectionate cats. They're really dumb. They're so dumb. Um, and they will... Um, they require constant attention. So if you're allergic to them, 
it's a terrible situation because they want to be on you all the time. They want your dander everywhere. And I put off getting scratch tested for years. The first cat was a surprise gift. My mom surprised me at Christmas with a cat. And I, I had remember just broken I was there. up. I had just broken up with a guy who was terribly allergic to cats. And she didn't know anything about that or the guy. So if it had happened just a few months earlier, it would have been a problem. I don't know if I would have been able to take the cat. But I did take the cat, and I knew kind of right away that I was allergic, and I ignored it, and I did, you know, whatever. And and then a friend of ours got a cat just like it and wasn't able to keep it. And so I took that cat and all of its passel of separation anxiety issues, and um, the allergies <laughs> just got steadily worse. And I was I, everyone said, go get tested. And I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go get scratch tested. And it'll be several things, and I'll I'll mitigate those other things in some way, and and just deal with the cat allergy. Well, the only allergy that came back was the cat allergy, and it was it was really a challenge. I had to rehome the cats, and 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 I, you know, what I realized is that I um I don't know. I I'm like you. I think it would need to be a special circumstance before I'm able to be a pet owner again. You know, I, yeah. I, I love French bulldogs. I follow many French bulldogs on Instagram. I, I look to them for my life advice and, uh, I, I couldn't have one in this apartment. I've got three stories worth they seem of so happy. stairs. They are so happy. And I don't know if they're just trying to breathe or if they're like really happy, if they're truly happy, but, um, Breathing anyway, is, you know, something to be happy about. So, yeah, why not? It is something to be happy about. And it's something that's apparently challenging for, for dogs with that sort of facial structure. So Apparently so, um, yes. But to wrap up my my emotional history, I feel like we've made Jim's answer about ourselves. But um, my emotional history with dogs, are the reason I can't have one right now is that I have a three set, uh, three stories of glass staircase in my house, which is really fun and whatever. But dogs get about 10 steps up and then realize that they can see through it. And they're like, no, that's it. They just quit. We brought my neighbor's bulldog <laughs> over once and she got up to the first landing and was like, yeah, and seen. I'm not walking up any more of this. But anyway. Yeah. But I like that idea. I like the idea of initially resisting responsibility for something in a time of crisis and then finding that it gives you kind of a sense of. You know, we made it work, is what Jim said. We, he and the dog, made it work. I like apparently, that. yeah, but it worked out for both of them, which I think is really yeah. the beautiful part of that story. Um, so I, I liked it, it's really long, and we may have to paraphrase it a little bit. But Sam, Sam, um, Stephanie's had a great from South story. Carolina. Yes, she had a great story about meeting Hello, her husband, South Carolina, and I love. Um, I love this idea that we, and we have talked about this idea before, which is sometimes like some of the most significant romantic relationships I have had. I met the person not in a place that was designed for you to meet people, but doing something I didn't really want to do that was actually for somebody else. Absolutely. I went to a, I went to a fundraiser to support a friend and met a guy I had a relationship with. I went to a city council event here that I was sort of obligated to go to and met a guy I had a, was with for almost a year, which in my dating history is a really long time. Uh, you know, and, and so Sam Sam has a similar story. Um, this is this is her talking now. So I'm a bit, a bit of a nerd. I grew up in South Carolina and not a lot of people around here got the joy of comics and man, manja. Manja? 
it's a it's a thing that I should know how to pronounce it, but I don't. I think it's ga. I think it's hard. I think it's manga or manga. 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 We're being told manga. by our our the control room that it's manga. So uh, Sam loves comics and manga, and she grew up in a mostly rural biblical community, which found the things that she liked to be odd and sometimes disappointing for a young girl of her age, especially when that young girl didn't want to find a husband immediately after high school or start reproducing. Again, I'm going to go back into Sam's voice now. So I'm like 23 and 24, 23 or 24. I'm still a massive nerd and a friend of mine. Her name is Etta tells me she has a friend in college. They took a biology class together, and he likes a show called Trigun. She writes in, in uh, parentheses, good stuff. Trigun is good stuff. Um, and she says I should ask her. Well, I don't know her, what Trigun is. Do you know what Trigun I, is? I don't know. We're so old. I feel old. I feel Sam, old. Sam, I'm we'll not have to share res- more about Trigun for us on we'll the Facebook the- page so that we can know what Trigun is about. But that was the show that they love. I guess it must be something to do with the manga or the comics. Right. So they have this in common. They find each other on Facebook and they start chatting. She learns that he's a good old country boy. She describes him as sweet. He enjoys video games like Final Fantasy VII and Dark Souls. I'm, I'm thinking that Dark Souls is a video game, but she might have also said he enjoys Dark Souls. I'm being told that, yes, Dark Souls is a video game. And he but, also likes... Sh- <laughs> yeah, that's you, Christopher, who likes Dark Souls. That's I like that's Dark how, Souls. That's how we got to be friends. I like Dark Souls. They're delicious. Um, he also likes a form of anime called Shonen, I think. So anyway, they, they're chatting on Facebook for a year. They talk every day, all the time, but they never meet or talk on the phone. It's all just through Facebook. I've been there, done that. Everyone warns me. This is Sam talking again. Everyone warns me. He warns me he might be too good to be true. I might be ghosted later, etc. So my friend Etta, this is the one who introduced them to begin with, invites me to his art show because he also does graphic design. And she says that I should come see him before he's gone back to his small town where I'll never find him. What kind of small town is this where one can never be found? Yeah, it's Brigadoon. He, he grew up Br- in Brigadoon. Or Wayward Pines. One, Sinks some hybrid into the, the mist. Thing. Yes, maybe it was Wayward Pines. It was in a different time frame. He also invites me to the art show to meet him for the first time ever in IRL. Now, I'm not too old. I know what that means. It means in real life. Yes. Even Sam I know writes, what that means. I'm freaking out, she writes in all capitals, because I have to work until six, and the art show is at seven, and it's an hour and a half away in Florence. Do you want to help us out with the geography of the Carolinas that's, there? Is that uh, really that's in- headed towards the beach. That's um, out. Uh, it's not at the beach, but it's not. It's closer to the beach than where I was uh, living, and where if she's in Camden now, where she was living. Um, she's currently living. It's uh, on the way to Myrtle Beach, the north eastern part of the state. It's triangular shaped, so it's kind of hard to point to anything on it with any sort of um, accuracy. Well, she drives there at 90 miles an hour all the way there after work. And she's, she issues in her comment an apology to the state and local police. It was a bad call all around on her part. I do apologize, she writes. I guess things have changed in South Carolina. Everybody was trying to drive 90 miles an hour when I, I used to still live there. So maybe, <laughs> maybe they're behaving better than they used to. I, I don't know. But 
I, I don't know that that would have been that unusual <laughs> back in the before times. Um, anyway, she doesn't know where to go. She gets lost in some school as she's trying to find the place where the gallery opening is. And then she um, presumably finds the place. I'm trying to follow the chronology of her comment, but she sees a dude with a rainbow mohawk. Um, so she takes her chances and he shows her where the art building is. That's where they're she having the gallery. She assumes that opening. that must be, must be somebody who would know where an art building is to have a rainbow mohawk. I see. Because when I first read her comment, I thought the guy in the rainbow mohawk was the guy she was going to meet. So she no. heads inside. And there's my dude, she writes, dressed up in his blue slate suit with his hair cropped, looking like his ador- this adorable, dorky cinnamon roll. What Aww. a sweet description. He tells me he likes my hair. I'm rocking Hermione Granger poof Her hair. Her hair apparently looked like home. shit. <laughs> So Did she, she drive there lying. in a convertible? Is that what it is? She drove there in 90 with the top down? She left work and drove there as fast as she could. Maybe. That would be very exciting. Very theatrical. And we talk, and it's just so sweet and normal, I could cry. We end up dating for about five years, and now I'm married to some random dude I never would have met if it weren't for a show made in Japan and a good friend. That is a beautiful story. I love that story. Yeah, that's really sweet and romantic. And yeah, and it's kind of often how it happens when you least expect it. Julia Roberts says that it's always when she looks her worst. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. I guess that it doesn't happen anymore because she's married to Danny. But like back in the day when she was still on the market, like she said, I can count on it. If I've if I'm recovering from a cold, I don't have any makeup. My hair is pulled back and I look like absolute hammered shit. That's when I meet the new guy. Yeah, but it it gets to that idea of that we talk about this a lot, too. It's really hard to control that part of our lives. You know, it's it's who we're well, going to meet. It's not possible. When. It's really. Yeah, it's hard to It's not possible to manage it. And there are all sorts of dating services and whatever sort of trying to convince you that you can. And you can produce the perfect outcome, but and I think you can do that, and I think that it works for a lot of people. And you know, I just the the part that I can't deal with it is that it's it's about saying I'm going to be in control of the outcome of events, and that that concept freaks me out a little. Yeah, I went to a dating service once, and I was almost sold on it until the woman said, "Well, isn't it time that you took control of your life?" And I thought. <laughs> what what did you hear when she said that? What did you hear that made you recoil? Well, it's about I, I what I heard was what I was reminded of was a lot of the choices that I had made, the things that I had decided that needed to be my life that I thought would make me happy, that I thought would fix it, that I thought would whatever. You know, I and the way that things actually have worked out in my life the way that things have actually come to be in a way that was nothing like what I would have thought was Mm -hmm. very much like this, you know, doing Mm -hmm. something that I would have had resisted doing um, or that I was doing something else. um, And then the thing happened, whatever it was, the getting published happened as a result of me doing a temp job and trying to learn to do mail merge on the computer. Mm -hmm. That's how I became Mm -hmm. a published author. 
Mm-hmm. Well, well, somebody, well, take us through that. How did that happen? Somebody walked past my desk as I was editing something that I had written. Um, and they said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm editing something I wrote. And they said, oh, are you a writer? And I said, yeah. And they said, do you have an agent? And I said, oh, God, no, I'm not that. I've never, you know, gotten that far with it. Um, and they said, well, you should get Writer's Market, which was the name of this book. I'm sure it's a program now or a website or mm-hmm. something, or maybe it doesn't exist anymore. But it's basically a phone book. And I followed the instructions in the phone book and used the instructions, which said, write a solicitation letter and write it to follow this one page form and uh, find it, make a list of agents that you've either heard of in your area or are representing similar work and then send them this query letter. And I, um, I did it as a project to learn to use mail merge on WordPerfect because I knew I could get better temp gigs if I knew how to do mail merge. And so mm-hmm. I did a mail merge. I mailed them out. I was working at Geffen records at the time. Um, so Mr. Geffen actually paid for the postage. I get, sent him a free book afterwards and thanked him. Um, mm-hmm. I've never heard from him and he didn't know I'd taken the postage to begin with, but, um, <laughs> but, but, um, but I, I, I felt like I owed him something. So um, he, I, uh, I, I sent it out and I didn't expect to hear anything. Like I did it mm-hmm. as a, you know, I, I used those names and addresses with the form letter I typed up to do the mail merge and mailed them out. And I got, I think 17 affirmative responses out of a, um, out of like 25, 20, 25 letters. It was overwhelming. They either wanted to know more or they wanted sample copy or they wanted, there was some positive response and then ended up getting an agent and ended up getting published from that process. But it Mm -hmm. was not what I had intended to do at the time. In fact, I had given up on writing. I had come to Los Angeles because it was time for me to be an entertainment reporter. That's Mm -hmm. actually, that would be my thing I resisted to do the longest, like was I, if I had it to do over, I would graduate from high school and get in a car and come to Los Angeles. Like I would not have gone to college, um, and followed my, you know, like efforts to be an actor, to be an artist, Mm -hmm. to be who I am, to be, you know, I don't know how that would have turned out. And, you know, it might've killed me, but I, I, I feel like, like my life really took off when I got here and it wasn't even a place that I I would have thought New York getting out of, Mm -hmm. um, out of high school because it was, you know, I was going to be an actor and like most Mm -hmm. of the acting jobs in the world were here, not in uh, New York. Right. Um, But I was, you know, not, I was sniff, sniff, you know, better than Los Angeles. Um, But if I wish I had just get gotten in a car and come to Los Angeles and, you know, gotten a job and tried to start figuring it out from here, rather than spending years trying to work in advertising and do things on the side or whatever. I don't regret my life. I think it's worked out great. But if I had it to do over again, I would have come here sooner because the the best of my life began to happen when I arrived here. Mm-hmm. This is probably a good opportunity to remind people that if you want to experience the same type of penetrating insight that Eric Shaw Quinn gives to both his life and mine on this podcast, we do something or we're trying something called Ask Eric, where you can submit your questions. If you'd like to submit them anonymously, you can do that as well because we have an email address set up, eric at the dinnerpartyshow.com. And we will be compiling what we get and uh, 
setting or, Eric loose on, or, or we, we will be. Get, and if we don't get anything, we will consider that that's that that's an answer to the question Asked as well. That and you're not answered. That it's like okay, you, so yeah, you've heard me give advice on the air, and you don't want it personally. You, I can totally yeah. understand that too. If you do want to remain anonymous, say so in the email because you know I've got a big mouth, and we'll tell everybody. He's got a big, big mouth. I yeah. really so, do, but yeah, that would be fun, and, and you know, like uh, maybe. Um, and I'm always happy to help if I can, and God knows I always have an opinion. So our friend Dusty Drochet said in response to this question. And let me remind you of what the question, what's the thing you resisted the most that turned out to be the best for you? He said, coming out. I mean, what a yeah. waste of time. I, I don't know that I was ever that in, but the more out I have been, the happier I have been. Absolutely, Dusty. Nothing could be truer. Lying about who you are is not anything anybody should do ever, unless you can, I don't know, go to jail for it. And if you should, you know, like if it was because you murdered somebody, well, then you shouldn't have murdered somebody. But if it's for being who you are, then maybe you live in the wrong place. Okay. And this answer, I'm sorry. I don't know how to put this in context, but Tommy Dean says this broccoli. Yeah, you know, it gets a lot of bad press, but it's better than you think it's going to be. If it's cooked what, right. Is it? Okay, is it? All right, well, we had more answers to the questions. We didn't have time to get to them all, but we'll probably save them for a later show. We want to let everybody <laughs> everybody know, and we'll have more questions like these again on our Facebook page for the Dinner Party Show. That's where we do our Facebooking. Uh, on our next episode, we're bringing back Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. Ooh. It will be a special Mother's Day edition because the episode will be posting on Mother's Day. It will be the first time we serve up an episode of the series Murderers and Their Mothers, uh, season one. And we'll be doing episode two, which is devoted to Fred and Rose West, the killer couple. Now, if you're new to our podcast and you don't know how True Crime TV Club works, I'm about to tell you. We break down and serve up an hour long episode i love rules i love rules and things that control things right um we serve in a, up an episode of a true crime uh tv series of some sort if you would like to watch that episode before everything we talk about is streamable on various platforms you are not required to watch it because if we are doing our job in the podcast we are serving it up in such detail that you can walk away and have a conversation about it with your friends and pretend like you watched it when really you just listen to us bitch about it for an hour on our show so that's how Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club works here right? at the TDPS Network. That was also how our book club kind of worked. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody ever read the book. It was just, it was like, oh my God, why we are we read in a book, book club with you people? Huh? We read the book. Right. You and, and nobody I who came. Read the book. And the people who came didn't. And it was always like, guys, that's the point of book yeah. club. If we don't all read the same book, what are we going to talk about? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was because it was a monthly book club, like it was too often. I, I don't look at me trying to blame myself for the fact that other people are lazy readers. Yeah, like no, but none of them said, "Could we have more time?" Yeah, no, no. <laughs> so we'll be sharing these and other resentments about our friends on the next episode <laughs> of uh, TDPS presents Christopher and Eric. <laughs> Until then, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. 
This is TDPS.